Sego, Tanze, and welcome to episode one of the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation podcast, The Ontologies of Land. This roundtable features presentations by three Indigenous speakers, presenting their own understandings of the concept of land and the inherent contradictions and controversies as they approach wider ontological approaches to the land. We begin with Dale Turner from the University of Toronto, followed by Paula Sherman from Trent University, and concluding with Robert Lovelace, Queen's University. Thank you. It's great to be back on uh, in Queens and Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee traditional territories. And although I noticed the Anishinaabe is named first, is there? Oh, it's alphabet. Oh, okay. Well, um, uh, I so uh, my name is Dale Turner. My uh, father is uh, Temi Anishinaabe from. Tomogamy, Lake Tomogamy in Northern Ontario. And my mother is English from Devon uh, in England. And uh, I've just moved to the University of Toronto in political science and Indigenous studies after uh, spending 22 years at Dartmouth in uh, New Hampshire. So it's great to be back uh, in Canada. And I thought, um, in looking through, we have a long day um, ahead of us. I really look forward to hearing uh, the thoughts of some of the uh, some of the speakers. And um, I just thought what I would do is um, lay out, I lay out uh, a few talking points, things that I have um, been thinking about lately. Uh, so really, three three things. And the first is I've been thinking about. Um, the use of indigenous terms in contemporary indigenous politics. So one of the courses that I teach is called Indigenous Nationalism, and it's a comparative course using kind of, uh, Canada as a kind of a touchstone to look at Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. And um, w one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, in the past, say, 20 years in Canada, really since, I think, Dalgamuk, there's been this infusion of indigenous terms, indigenous uh, terms into uh, the politics. And I have uh, four examples. Um, so the Dalgamuk decision, which is, uh, was from the 1997 Supreme Court decision of the Gitsan Wet'suwet'en people. Um, what I find interesting about this case is that they first sought ownership of their territories, not title. So the form of recognition that they were looking for is, uh, that they were seeking was, in a sense, lied outside the uh, uh, limits of the common law. That claim was later changed when it went to the Supreme Court where they sought title, which is a right, a constitutionally protected right, and I think that this that move, in a sense, shifted the dialogue and shifted the meaning of the language, in particular, the terms that the Gitsan Wet'suwet'en people used in the case. So, for example, what they did was they uh, took a two-track approach, a two-row approach, since I'm I can use that term here. Um, on one part, they they did a legal analysis of the Royal Proclamation of 1763, um, Section 88 of the Indian Act, Section 109 uh, of the Constitution, and so on, to make this um, argument that when uh, the BC became part of Confederation, they didn't carry with them the rights to assert sovereignty over their territory. So they made this common law argument. However, their medicine people took another approach, which was that they used their own uh, Gitsan Wet'suwet'en philosophies, their own traditional ways of thinking about their, the, the world, essentially. Um, and what they did was they introduced two terms. Uh, they hung their argument, so to speak, on these two terms, on uh, the Kungaks and the Adok, which were kinds of ceremonies. The Kungaks was a Wet'suwet'en song. The adok was a kind of ceremony, part of a potlatch ceremony, and what they did was they, they brought, they literally brought their medicine people onto the stand, um, and um, um, 
they, they use their own ways of understanding the world, their own languages, actually, uh, to justify, quotation marks, to explain their relationships to land, which entailed for them a kind of argument. That this is, you're asking for why, the question is, why do we own our homelands? Here's our answer, it's in our own language. By the time this got through the courts, um, the court in, uh, certainly at the Superior Court of BC, Justice McEachern, um, and political theorists appreciate this, uh, quoted Hobbes's, what's the phrase he uses for um, explaining the man in the state of nature? Life is short, nasty, and brutish. Actually used this quote to characterize the Gitsan with Soatan people basically saying they don't really live in civil societies. And so part of, I think, the backlash against that was this, against that kind of Eurocentrism at the Supreme Court was the court basically said, we need to find ways of listening and accommodating indigenous oral traditions as legitimate sources of evidence. And I think this was seen as a huge, in some ways, a victory However, drawing from the Vanderpeet decision, which was less than a year before that, the court said, and this is kind of characterizes indigenous politics today, it said, yes, we're willing to listen to indigenous oral traditions as sources of evidence, legal evidence, but you have to use a language that we understand. So you have to use the language of the common law to come into a court, articulate who you are, and then, um, and, and then of course, it's judged, literally judged by um, non-Indigenous uh, judges in this case. So there's always that proviso attached to it, which is, well, if you're going to use the courts as a way of, um, of, of having us recognize, in this case, title, which is a whole separate sort of conversation, moving from the idea of ownership, which is what I think indigenous peoples work with, to this idea of title, which is a right, a constitutional right protected in the Constitution. So the language then of the common law has evolved, at least since 1982, explicitly around this language of title. Aboriginal rights exist on a scale. Aboriginal title is defined as a right to the land itself. The language of rights is in a sense its home, its rightful home in terms of how we understand the language is within the common law. And indigenous peoples have had to play that game. This is why we have a whole generation of indigenous lawyers, right? Because and, and the Bear Island case from Tomogamy is a good example. And I've been reading a lot about this case um, <coughs> where our elders were also cross-examined in courts of law. Anyway, so the, the, the use then, the strategy was to bring kind of indigenous concepts into a court of law only to be met again with this resistance then, and, and the provision that we'll listen to as long as we, it, we understand it in our language. And I think philosophically this is, uh, well, justice-wise, but in terms of philosophy and thinking about meaning and how meaning is a cross-cultural understanding and how we come to understand something like ownership, or even title for that matter, is um, I think that this distinction, we need to unpack this a bit more. Um, the, the other examples, I'll go through these a little more quickly. The, the Anishinaabek Nation of Ontario has come up with its own constitution called the Chidnaknegaiman. And the Chidnaknegaiman is a really interesting example of how indigenous languages are finding their way into a pol indigenous politics because the constitution was originally drafted by, um, by the 40, I think then 42 nations in, in Ontario, Anishinaabe nations. And, um, and when it came time to ratify it in Sault Ste. Marie, the clan mothers um, got together and ob objected. And they said, we cannot, we cannot pass this constitution because it's really framed in a Western European way of thinking. And what they did was they insisted on adding a preamble to it. 
And the preamble is written, and it's actually meant to be spoken. And it's in Anishinaabe Moan, and it's not translated. And in this, um, in, in this preamble, they lay out the um, this, this sort of seven grandfather teachings as a way of grounding. So what it does is it actually makes the, for indigenous peoples, treaties, for example, are seen as living documents. What it does is it, this, the Chinak Nagaiman then, the constitution is a living, a living document and it's offered as a kind of gift to the dominant culture, but it's prefaced. It begins with, just like our greeting today, it begins with the indigenous language as a kind of assertion Right? But it also, there's a philosophical point here as well, which I think is that in order to understand us, you need to understand our language. And that is taken as a kind of given. So this constitution, I think, is a kind of step in, certainly in Anishinaabek politics, where the indigenous language, Anishinaabe Moen, is taken right from the beginning of the relationship as an authentic source of knowledge. And I think that that is an interesting political claim, especially for uh, people in political theory and, and sort of philosophy as well. <coughs> Another example um, that I think is really interesting is that our Maori, our Maori friends in Aotearoa, um, the terms Kawanatanga and Tino Rangatirotanga are two central terms to the Treaty of Waitangi, which was signed in 1840. And so they signed, there's only three um, uh, articles in this treaty. It's a really short treaty. And uh, without going into it, uh, although maybe it'll come up in the, in, uh, the conversations, is um, a misunderstanding on the part of, the, from the Western European perspective, they believed they were asserting sovereignty over their territories and therefore this land. And if you read the English version of it, it's pretty clear what they're saying. However, when you unpack the Maori version, what they're basically saying in the Maori version is they're recognizing their chieftainship, right? Which is, oh, thank you. Great service. I'll have a strawberry daiquiri, please. <laughs> so, um, so these, ter uh, the, the, in order to have the Maori chiefs, over 500 of them, sign off on this treaty, they had to tell them, they had to explain to them you, in Maori that no, what you're giving up or what you're recognizing is kawanatanga, which is a form of almost administrative authority, while you retain tinorangatiratanga, which is your own chieftainship, which is your own traditional ways of understanding your relationships to your land. That remains intact. But the language that was used in English was that the crown is now asserting sovereignty over your territories and you've become citizens of the state. So this, and then the treaty was ignored for a hundred years. But the politics, the recent politics in, in, since the turn of the 20th century, these terms Kawanatanga and Tinorangatiratanga have been brought into mainstream uh, New Zealand politics, in particular Maori politics, but their use and their meaning has, uh, has, has been problematized in and of itself. And one good way I think that we see this um, is, is the recent Whanganui River, with the, where the river has been granted rights, like almost rights, the same rights as a human. And the, the source for that, on one hand, can be seen in a kind of liberal model of rights, but on the other hand, the tra certainly traditionalists are saying this is a recognition of, of Rangatiratanga. So there, there is this traditional argument, this traditional perspective, which is being woven into this kind of liberal nationalist politics. Um, and this is, uh, this is only recent. So, um, but I see real danger um, of plucking these indigenous terms you only have to look at what's happened to Aloha in, in, with the Kanaka Maoli, right? They pluck these terms out of their sort of home, which is from the communities and the language of the communities, and they, resh they reshape their meaning into the legal, political, social practices of the dominant culture. 
And I, so I, that's one area of, uh, that I see five minutes already? Okay. So anyway, um, anyway, Sigmar. Um, so that this, this, this first area sort of cordoning off is, is the use of indigenous languages in contemporary indigenous politics and everything from land recognition to, I think, because this, this panel is starting things off is with this from a philosophical perspective, and I mean that by Western European, this kind of, depending on, depending on where you've been trained, ontology is a very uncomfortable word, right? Ontology has to do with being, and um, it's epistemology and metaphysics, you know, and, the, and in, I went to grad school at McGill where metaphysics and ontology were sort of marginalized and, you know, the sort of thing, but we're, and not only that, it's pluralized, ontologies. So I, I think that it's, um, it's a really important area for indigenous scholars and indigenous studies because I think if we are going to make these arguments that indigenous languages connect people in place and land, there is a kind of, and the term that we use, and I, this my paper, right, I focus on this idea of indigenous spirituality as a term that's used within English politics to capture this kind of relationship that indigenous peoples have to land. And I think that indigenous languages are very important, and I know that I've experienced this, these relationships, in particular in ceremonies and things like this, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, I might as well say it, I'm very skeptical about how we move from that understanding and that way of being in the world to a court of law. So I'm really interested in what happens. In my first book, I wrote about word warriors as word warriors as a group, as a mostly indigenous people, young people who are educated in a particular way to understand the law, right? We, and they use law in a certain way. My more recent work, um, now that I, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just finishing up a manuscript um, called Reveries of a Solitary Indian, where actually that, that model, that way of thinking about the, how knowledge is brought out of the communities does depend on this group of people, but I think it's, we need to reshape the relationship between our medicine people and the language and the lifestyles that medicine people live their everyday lives and how we, how we as responsible community members and non-community members who care how, what do we do with language? What do we do with those kinds of ceremonies and ways of thinking and being? How, what do we do with those by the time we end up in, say, a court of law? Because the reality is we're still going to need to go to a court of law. Wasn't it? I think I just saw the news that the federal government has, has uh, in BC for the, the um, pipelines has just, just granted their, um, what, what, what's it called? Um, when they, injunction, so um, they have to get their application together quickly, so it's a reality. What language do we use? And you can see this now with the Wet'suwet'en, right, the, the hereditary chiefs uh, setting up blockades on their own territories while they're also community members who are participating in the building of these pipelines. So this is a really important central issue in indigenous communities and I think indigenous studies. Um, because we keep talking about indigenous methodologies, right, and new epistemologies and so on. Well, I think we, this, is, this is kind of what, where we need to rethink this. Um, and uh, I guess one way of wrapping, uh, of tying this up for me, from my perspective in my paper, is um, for me as a Western European trained community person, um, Wittgenstein has always lied in the background in guiding my thinking and the way to approach language. People call me Wittgensteinian. Um, but I think, I think at this stage in my career, I'm, and the one thing I'll be working with is more graduate students. I've never worked with graduate students before. And I think what I would like to see is more engagement with some of what I would call the deep theory that guides the normative language that we use. For example, Wittgenstein is a particular is an Austrian philosopher, but he has a particular view of language that's influenced a whole generation of thinkers in political theory, philosophy. 
and whether you like him or not, um, his view of language, his approach of language is a kind of pragmatic exercise, right? The meaning, the understanding of a term, the understanding of our language is how it's actually used in practice. It seems to me that's a very indigenous way of thinking about knowledge. Knowledge is how we use it in our everyday lives. And so there is a kind of, I think, philosophical bridge that can be useful, but I think it's most useful if in, um, in educating our students to develop a critical attitude, a critical language to addressing some of these more on-the-ground practical problems, such as what do we do with our indigenous languages in a court of law? So there is a kind of purpose and vision of pulling these things uh, together. And I think some of the people who I look forward to hearing um, and listening to have been working on these problems their whole career. So, um, and, and especially community people as well, because they live it in their everydayness. They may not read Wittgenstein, but, but um, which is too bad, you know, but uh, what can I say? Um, anyway, I'll end it there, and um, thank you very much. It's really great to be here. I look forward to chatting with everybody. Bojo, Kwekwe, Paula Ndishnikas, Ardok Ndanjaba, Mishik Dodem. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to come here. Thank you, Jan. Um, I'm really happy to be here to, I guess, talk about ontologies of land. For me, when I think about ontologies of land, I really think about like our ancestors and their connection kind of to the natural world because it, it's really their relationships that they developed over thousands of years that is really, I, I think, allowing us to even, I guess, be who we are. So when I think of the idea of ontologies of land, I guess there's just a couple of things that I thought I might touch on. And one is indigenous relations, because I don't think there's enough research that's really being done on our relationships with each other as nations. Because I think that they are in themselves a, a representation of ontologies of land. And I'm going to give an example of that. When I was, uh, for my dissertation, I actually looked at Algonquin-Mohawk relations. And that's because when I was growing up, my dad told us, you know, when we were kids, if we went out at night, Mohawks would kill us. <laughs> you know, and there's just this kind of idea of um, among Anishinaabe people about Mohawk people, and there's an idea among Mohawk people about Anishinaabe people as well. Like, um, when I went, I did my, um, my uh, PhD at Trent, where I'm now working as well. And uh, when I was there, I met uh, Susan Hill. We became really good friends. We um, were roommates. Uh, we're still really good friends. And one of the things that we really started talking about was how come we have these kind of perceptions about each other? You know, I kind of shared what uh, my dad had said when we were growing up. And she kind of shared that she had always heard and kind of felt that, uh, you know, Algonquin people, Anishinaabe people were kind of, uh, you know, not assertive, really, <laughs> that we were kind of fence-setters, and particularly Algonquins, that we were kind of fence-setters and didn't like to rock the boat too much and that kind of stuff. So, um, so anyway, we started talking about, like, some of these kind of perceptions, you know, and the thing that we came to really realize is they're in our oral tradition today, but they really originate in the historic record. And they're really largely connected to uh, French colonization, so when I was doing my dissertation, the first thing I wanted to understand is, as uh, Omama Wanani people, as Algonquin people, what is our relationships with the land? You know, what do they go back to? So I, uh, I spoke to, firstly, to our elder, Harold Perry and Ardoch, uh, and then I also spoke to William Commanda as well, uh, as well as uh, some indigenous, uh, sorry, some uh, Anishinaabe women elders as well. Um, particularly Edna Manitowabi and uh, Shirley Williams, who I uh, worked with quite and still work with closely at Trent. And one of the things that I really came to understand was that we have particular ways of, of kind of understanding the world, of interacting in the world to the point that, and I think Jan mentioned this, you know, that we wouldn't enter Haudenosaunee people's territory, particularly Mohawk people's territory, without, you know, having like the edge of the wood ceremony, and they wouldn't enter our territory. And so when I was talking to um, Ernie Benedict about this as well, like he, he said a similar thing to me that, you know, 
Um, the perceptions that are out there about Mohawk people are largely based on the Jesuit relations, the 72 volumes. If, has anybody read the Jesuit relations? <laughs> There's like 72 volumes of them. And they, they largely kind of, they're really propaganda. That's what I came to realize about them. They're largely propaganda. Um, and uh, a good example of that is they detail really greatly all of these supposed atrocities that, particularly Mohawk people, and they just classify everybody as Iroquois, and they don't say whether someone's Mohawk or Seneca. Or, you know, they, they don't clarify that. They just, they just use the term Iroquois. And so they kind of, um, they kind of go off and... They just have all of these, uh, these kind of descriptions. And, and one in particular that I wanted to share, which I found was really kind of difficult to read even, um, but it describes this 83-year-old Algonquin woman who was supposedly taken captive by the Mohawks. And uh, they supposedly, over a long period of time, like tortured her. They pulled out her fingernails. They, they like, um, you know, filed off the ends of sticks and they jabbed her in the stomach and they pulled all her entrails out. There's all of this is what the Jesuits say. And then they, they tied her up at night, like staked her out, and then after 10, she somehow managed to escape and crawl through the bush for 10 kilometers until she reached a Jesuit camp to where they saved her before she died. <laughs> and that's the account, right? And the really big problem with that is no 83-year-old woman is going to survive that at all to even survived the torture, never mind, you know, going there. And <clears throat> when, I was, uh, when I was talking to the elders about this, they were just like, that's, that's bullshit, basically, that that's not true at all. You know, and the problem with the Jesuit relations is they would, um, the Jesuit relations would be destroying an Algonquin community, and then 20 pages later, they're destroying the same community again. So the Jesuit relations are really propaganda. You know, they're not, most of what they say in there isn't factual. That's not that there isn't some true things in there. Uh, there was another, uh, another example uh, maybe that I could pull from that is there's a, there's a, disc uh, uh, sorry, a description of, uh, of uh, and this is actually uh, one of the Jesuit fathers actually talking about one of the um, Stegard, uh, one of the Recollet missionaries, and how he came upon this Algonquin village, and there were Nipissing and, uh, and new people there as well, and, there, and um, Wyandot people, and there was a, a ceremony that was going on, and so this, so Stegard, he goes up, and he's, he can hear, he can hear people, like, he can hear the sticks, like they're hitting sticks, and they're singing, he can hear all of this, but he can't see anyone, because everyone's in there, so he goes up and he like looks through, like he's like watching what's happening, like through this hole in the wood. And what's happening is all the women are on one side and all the men are on the other side. And there's this old man and he's holding this baby up, you know, he's holding this baby up in the air. And he's like, they're, they're offering that baby to the devil, you know. And I, and I was talking to Edna about that. And I'm like, that is not what's happening. And she's like, no, obviously that's a naming ceremony, you know, that's happening. But so there's all of these kinds of um, the Jesuit relations and, you know, uh, Sagard and the Reckley missionaries, Champlain as well. Like Champlain describes uh, this kind of attack that supposedly happened where Algonquin people are traveling with uh, Nipissing people and Wyandotte people down the, the river of the Mohawk to a Mohawk village. And he talks about how the Algonquins are so afraid of their own shadow that they cower in a fetal position in the woods and they hide until it's nighttime so that they can go without the Mohawks seeing them because they're so afraid. But then, um, so they, they, they finally go, but they won't put any guards up at night. They just sleep in, which freaks Champlain out too because he felt they should be guarding against, you know, Mohawk attacks, but they rather, they really just wanted to sleep. So they, anyway, when they get to the Mohawk village, you know, they're, um, it's like late at night and they don't really want to fight them or anything. They're just kind of, he's like, well, why don't you go fight them? And they're like, well, you know, and then, and then I guess they're talking to the Mohawks and the Mohawks are like, well, it's kind of dark. Like, you know, maybe we should just meet in the morning. So the, um, in the morning, no one's trying to fight with each other, you know, they may have just been, from what I understood, they may have just been like yelling things back and forth at each other. They're not trying to kill each other. They're not trying to do anything, really. It's not until Champlain kind of steps out behind the Algonquins and he shoots one of the Mohawk people that, you know, the escalation kind of starts. And 
it's not even clear, like Ernie Benedict, when I talked to him, he wasn't even, it wasn't even clear to him whether or not those people were actually Mohawk. Because he felt at that time that there were people who were living there who were kind of related um, linguistically and culturally, but they may not have actually been part of the Confederacy. But he said if they were and there was a condoled chief killed, it would have destabilized them in the Confederacy until a new chief was put up which would have then destabilized their relationships with us, right, because kind of of Champlain. Um, so anyway, all of, uh, I guess what I wanted to say about this is that a whole lot of that stuff that's in the Champlain and in the Jesuit relations, the historical record, it's like not true. There, are, there were many, many, many times that Algonquin and Mohawk people tried to get together historically to renew relationships. And there's, uh, there's actual documentary evidence of this as well. There are wampum belts and, and things that were exchanged. Um, when I was talking to, and the, the, the biggest, I think, uh, I guess finding or whatever that I came to understand about Algonquin-Mohawk relations specifically, and this goes back, I think, to what, to what Jan was saying, you know, that you, like we lived together, our ancestors lived together for thousands of years as neighbors without massacring each other, without killing each other. Yet when the French show up, we suddenly can't take care of ourselves. That's how Champlain describes us as Algonquin people, that we're afraid of our own shadows and that we need the French to be here to protect us against the Mohawks who they demonize, right, in, in the historical writings. So um, really, so I guess what I came to understand about indigenous relations and particularly Algonquin-Mohawk relations was that on the uh, Mohawk side of that, that there are protocols and principles of relating that would have um, mandated how they would interact with us, including they wouldn't have entered our territory without stopping at the edge of the woods either, or you know, lighting a fire so that we would know, our ancestors would know they were there as well, right? Like, so it's only after uh, the French and the English come and they start fighting over our lands that uh, a problem starts to develop and really, if the French had let Haudenosaunee people trade with them, you know, then some of the conflicts that developed after that probably wouldn't have happened as well. Um, and then on the, uh, the Anishinaabe side of that, on the Algonquin side of that, you know, um, William Commander shared with me that we, we should not let um, white, particularly male historians, define what our relationships were like historically, that we should be doing that for ourselves. And it's one of the things that I've really noticed that there isn't a lot of stuff that's really written just on indigenous relations that's outside of, that's outside of talking about it in the context of colonialism. You know, so what are our relationships with each other as people? Because to me, they really are reflections of ontologies of land because our way of relating as human beings is kind of based on creation, based on uh, those really those relationships that kind of come out of creation and the responsibilities that we have as human beings. Um, and, you know, back in 2007 uh, and 2008, we, in RDOC, we were really dealing with uh, an issue around uranium exploration that we were trying to stop. And one of the things that, uh, that both Harold Perry and, and William Commander really said to us was that don't use the language of right because we don't have any. Algonquin people only have responsibilities. And so, and that really re relates back to the idea of, I, I guess, ontologies of land in that kind of sense. It goes back to uh, that, those ways and, uh, of thinking about the world and the cosmology that comes out of that. And <clears throat> so I guess how, how, what I've really learned from that whole process, I've been trying to really come to understand in the context of being a historian, you know, and, and, and teaching history at Trent. And um, so I wanted to just uh, finish up by telling you this, <laughs> the story of an experience that I had in teaching um, my, I, I created a course called Colonial Encounters, and it kind of deals with uh, colonialism and resistance around the world, and I, I, I touch on a lot of the I touch on a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the whole conference, like the uh, for the next couple of days. But the first term of the course, I um, and this is going back probably like four years, because now the course is actually a half course that's just focused on this. But previously, the first half of the course was called uh, the, of the first term was Foundations for Indigenous History. 
because I came to really understand that particularly settler uh, Canadian students could not understand Indigenous history at all. If Well, really, the only way they wanted to see it presented was in a Western kind of historical context. So what I thought I needed to do was to... Um, for the first term to show them what I felt the foundations for Indigenous history are. So starting with the idea of land and uh, the idea of the natural world and really kind of uh, embedding um, Cahete, Gregory Cahete's idea of spiritual ecology. Has anybody heard of Gregory Cahete? A few people. Like his, uh, his, if you haven't ever heard of him, look at his book, Native Science. It's, it's a, a really, really great book. Um, you can also find him a lot online. He has a, quite a few videos online. But he talks about this idea of spiritual ecology, and it really details heavily uh, the, uh, the relationships that indigenous peoples have with their homelands and how that has developed over thousands and thousands of years of relating in one place. And so I use that kind of as the, as the kind of foundation of, of that course. Uh, to kind of root people to the idea that the first foundation they should think of in thinking about indigenous histories is land and the natural world. And then the idea of knowledges, indigenous knowledges, and um, trying to get away from the idea of just focusing on essentialist ideas of male and female knowledge and to really um, introduce and get people to think of the idea as of indigenous knowledges having gender fluidity. Right? Because if you're just focusing on male knowledge and you're just focusing on female knowledge, then there's knowledges that you're kind of missing out on that could help you to understand right, the, the natural world. And then also um, uh, positionality, like who are we in relation to the knowledges and the, the histories that we're talking about. So how this really tracks out, though, when you're teaching history is, and I look at it the same way as when I was doing my dissertation, when it came to talking about the Mohawk um, understandings of their relationship with us, it's not my place to describe that or to talk about it. Um, I had uh, Rick Hill on my committee, and one of the things that we uh, agreed on and, and felt should happen is that in describing how they understood their relationship with us as people, that I would only use sources written by them and or um, interviews directly um, from Haudenosaunee people. So whenever I was in my dissertation describing those relationships, I used sources only written by them. It wasn't me as an Algonquin person talking about how they understood those relationships. So in, in acting that in my daily life, though, in, in work, that also plays out in how we teach courses because it is not my place to describe how other indigenous peoples understand their own history. So in doing the courses, I try to make sure that I'm using sources that are written by those particular indigenous peoples or videos or you know, um, guest speakers who can come in and who can relay that because um, otherwise they're not hearing uh, the history from those particular indigenous peoples and that's ethically what should be happening. So that's kind of how I've approached it. So just quickly, because I know my time's running out, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a student, this course, sorry, the Colonial Encounters course is cross, I'm in indigenous studies and that course is cross-listed with history. And there was a, a girl who was a, a student, a female student who was in the history program but was taking this course. And she filed a complaint against me with the history program, with the chair of the history program, telling me that I was teaching her religion because I was talking to her about what I felt the foundations of indigenous history are. She said that I wasn't teaching her history and that I was teaching her religion. And she wanted them to drop my course and not have it listed anymore. And they told her, basically, the chair of the history program, though, um, backed me up and said, basically, that if she didn't like how history was being taught, maybe she should switch to a different program. <laughs> because, realistically, you know, we're, we need to be the ones telling our own history, you know, and, and grounding it in our land and grounding it, grounding it in the knowledges and in the languages of our own peoples, you know, so... Uh, so anyways, I, I really think uh, ontologies of land are really rooted in history and we have to recover our own histories and particularly our own histories with other indigenous peoples will help us do that. So I'm hoping to continue to work more in that area um, and hopefully there will be more people who are doing that as well. Uh, so miigwech. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Robert Lovelace. Um, 
Since I reached the age of 70, I have stopped exposing myself in public. So I'd just like to say that I'm a human being, like most of you in the room. Um, what I'm going to do today is uh, I, I really fear myself going off into tangents. So I'm going to read some ep excerpts from the paper that I, I wrote for this conference. Uh, because I kept in mind the idea of ontology and this, this particular panel when I wrote the paper. Um, ontology is one of those fancy philosophical words that simply mean the way things are. Um, and so if we're looking at epistemology, then we're looking at how we figure out how things are. But today we're going to look at ontology. And uh, so I also sort of crafted this uh, so that, you know, as you write papers, you take all of those tangents and you try to figure out the most efficient way to cram them all together. And so it's in three parts. Uh, understanding the premise of land, the ontology of land. Uh, problem solving, how we go about solving the problems of the way things are. And uh, in the end, what we're left with. So um, I'll start this way. Uh, as modern colonialism increases its speed and volume through an acceleration of technology, it leaves behind a residue of unfinished business. Like most problems, disposing of refuse is a matter of economics. If you can simply toss trash to the side and forget it, the cost is negligible. In our advanced society, public relations dictates more symbolic forms of waste management. Spinning the palatable pretense justifies the increase of expense, of expense. It also limits the historical liability and the time required to legally dispense with accountability altogether. I think as Aboriginal scholars, we often find ourselves co-opted by this process. And I think in this uh, conference, we have to really work, and in, this, in dealing with this question, we really have to try our best not to get sucked into that process. So indigenous land rights should never be addressed lightly, although the context of the 21st century world places indigenous land rights as an appendix to constitutional laws and ideological frameworks. While the question of indigenous rights is an interesting discussion for lawyers and academics, indigenous peoples continue to matter less and less. And that's part of our real, our real ontology of today. The fact remains that true indigeneity remains illegal in Canada, with no discernible advantage within the widening power divide. Indigenous land rights should never be addressed lightly, because the struggle, more often than not, strengthens colonial interest rather than liberating the native or restoring original jurisdiction. Now, I wrote this with a methodology in mind of being self-critical. And I also wrote it in mind because my major research focus has been indigenous theory. To be indigenous is to maintain an interactive relationship between our genetic, culture, and ecosystem realities. To be an indigenous human is to evolve and diversify while remaining human. I've written previously this uh, description. Indigenous, a quality of community life having adapted a knowledgeable culture in a specific place where human and ecosystem activity support and enhance one another. Indigenous humanity has not been designed to become universal. We are among the most mobile species on this planet, adapting to thousands of variations in geography, climate, and ecological relationships. When we look at thousands of variations between us and throughout our evolutionary history, we not only see diversity, we also see, to see a shared propensity to learn and teach. This is culture. We humans watch our evolutionary shapes more physically to meet interactive encounters with physical demands, may they be dietary, spatial, or climatic, 
and culture has become the secondary means of successful adaptation and prosperity. We use divergent understandings to our advantage or detriment through rational intentionality. The indigenous experience is complex and a complete definition may be impossible. It is clear though that the myriad expressions of indigeneity emerge through interplay between filters of culture, ecology, and biology. The word land, now we're gonna define land, is a Germanic word, and like other words having indigenous origins has taken an eminently cultural usage in colonial English. From national enclosure to internal real estate, land is an object. As a noun, its value can be measured by what it can produce in, Lock in a Lockean sense. Our feudal heritage demands that it be taxed and divided for greater profit in a landed and landless economy. At the core of the faith in land is the king's law, or the rule of law as we know it in modern democracies today. The ideology in policy and practice entitles various civil rights in relation to economic and political status. Anishinaabe Moan, the indigenous language of much of central Canada, uses the word aki. Aki is used in, a combina in combination with other words to form complex ideas and more often than not to form verbs that communicate dynamic symbiosis. Hundreds of words include aki. For, for instance, Akiwan is sometimes used in translation for the English word homeland. However, that's not what it means. Akiwan means to know the land. And even in its translation, land as an object is imprecise. The best possible translation might be knowing the ecology, the living relationships of the personal and collective places that are experienced. Those are all verbs. For the modern colonial citizen, much of the idea is this idea is incomprehensible. Knowing the township, or the city, or the province, the nation state, and their laws is the structure of the constitutional pyramid. Far less important is whether a natural watershed is divided among multiple competing jurisdictions or used to demarcate two mutually exclusive social political solitudes. What is accepted each and every time at the negotiating table, and I speak from experience on this, is that a key is an anachronism, and land is the present and future. For the Aboriginal negotiator, reconciliation is to reconcile oneself to this proposition. Now, let's talk about rights a little bit. Contrary to their celebrated status within the Western middle class population, rights are in fact the principal means of subjugation. The vast, majority of living, the vast majority living under such circumstances do not sense they are captives. They may experience lives of quiet desperation, yet, I didn't say that, somebody said it before me, <laughs> yet they see themselves as perpetrators of their own fate we absorb more and more about some useless information. I didn't say that either. Somebody else said that before me. Accumulating the muscle of faith, believing we enjoy privileges which others do not because we have rights. We believe in the essential goodness of our masters because they appear so desperately hopeful that those who have fewer rights may one day have more. And while we feel sorry for the downtrodden and even guilty that our own affluence is in part paid by another's suffering, we believe their lot is no more our responsibility than the role of celestial dice. In fact, our caring for their concerns is self-confirming of our own morality. There is always the chance that one's rights might erode and be brought down to the level of the dispossessed, so it is our duty to make certain that such a catastrophe does not, cannot happen. It is our right to have rights. 
The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is an excellent example of the colonial limitations set within the rights-based narrative. UNDRIP, as it is commonly known, was long-term long in the making. Not to dismiss it out of hand, the document is well-meaning and has served a handful of nations as a guide for some constitutional amendments. I know that personally because I went to Ecuador to work with their Supreme Court on amending their constitution. For countries like the United States and Canada, it has been declared an aspirational document, well-meaning, but running contrary to national interests previously encoded in the constitutional law. For countries like France, the United Kingdom, and Israel that recognize no internal indigenous people, UNDRIP was no more than a passing side note at the UN. The declaration admittedly fails to clearly define what indigenous means, resorting to a composite of economic, social, and territorial qualifiers that should be respected by the dominant societies which surround such dependent populations. UNDRIP calcifies any remaining indigenous populations as internal colonies by offering tolerance while indigeneity decays in an onslaught of political and economic tidal waves. The idea of returning original jurisdiction or reimagining and practicing culturally indigenous-centered adaptations outside of the national constitutional boundaries is not considered. Like many of the national apologies and moves toward truth and reconciliation globally, UNDRIP allows post-colonial powers to lay to rest past grievances and to forge ahead with future projects. Much like corporate responsibility, indigenous research methodologies serve a variety of social and political interests while doing little or nothing to promote lived indigeneity. Such research remains rooted within the patronage of medieval economic and political Euro-American institutions. At present, we academics have a theory of indigenous research rather than a research guided by indigenous theory. As such, dominant liberal academic inquiry is much like UNDRIP. It satisfies the sensibilities of the tolerant mind while continuing to enforce the power of assimilation. Universal theory and indigenous theory are antithetical. Indigenous imic theories are place-based as well as cultural. Land, ecology, and contemporary social relationships inform and also limit indigenous theoretical approaches to problem solving while seeking adaptations to in-situ challenges. Universal ethic principles are elevated to the rank of saving the world while innate indigenous principles of knowledge creation emerge and are tested through local adaptation performance. To save the world incrementally demands ideologically controlling structures that remain reasonably static. That is why Western science continues to be stationed within medieval institutions. The classical, classical production of ideas has served those institutions and has reflected their cultural biases over centuries. Western knowledge is separated from its source and consequences in order to become a commodity. Western research methods direct this imperative. Universal theories establish and reinforce ideology as culture. When applied to indigenous cultures, universal logic dissolves the emergent and adaptive capacities of indigenous innovation, ruling out cultural vitality. The facade of culturally sensitive research and even inside-out strategic positioning is deceptive. Western researchers may romanticize indigenous approaches to problem solving, but only as long as these remain an essentialized novelty, massage contemporary identity crises, and do not impede funding applications or potential professional gains. These two theoretical farms are not a binary. They do not represent the ends of a spectrum. There is no commensurate middle ground between them. 
the purported universal qualities of universal of Euro-American knowledge are self-reflective illusions of a population that had gained, has gained such a privilege by dominating others through cunning, deceit, and violence. They are not actually universal and can never be in a world and among a species as diverse as us as that emerge on this earth. From an indigenous theory perspective, Western knowledge is the inevitable tangent at the end of a hypertrophic attempt at adaptation after culture has become consumed by culture. So, where are we at today from an existential or materialist point of view in terms of ontology? Two minutes left. How long did it take me to see that? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, there's a congenital conflict between Western epistemologies and indigenous epistemologies, which unsurprisingly engender adversarial engagement and make management of conflicts intractable, even at the level of personality. So, we have our work cut out for us over the next couple of days. Um, the idea of knowing the land indigenously is actually passing away, and that's a problem. Because we now live in a culture that's driven by Western science and innovation. And overcoming that and re-indigenizing is extremely difficult. I was, if I didn't, if I had more than two minutes, or a minute and a half, or a minute left, I would talk about the, what, what has happened to um, European indigeneity. Because what we face as our people of indigenous heritage is a uh, process that began at a stage of European indigeneity, moved into the feudal system, adopted feudal systems and uh, institutions, which we're in one right now, by the way, and uh, has now overcome the vitality of our own communities. I would just like to point out one thing, that during this process, the innate indigenous qualities of women threatened the hap the hypermasculine paranoia concerned with potential rev revolts and the emergence of indigeneity. That happened in Europe. Women were targeted specifically by the elites as the spiritual source of insurrection and therefore were persecuted and relegated to producing an ever-increasing class of subjugated workers. I think that's important for us to recognize is the inequalities that we, that we witness day after day after day within the larger community are not just directed at us, but have directed, been directed at uh, our ancestors, they've been directed at the European indigenous uh, peoples, and also the exploitation of labor and the ecology. We've got a lot to work on. Here's my revolutionary statement, and I guess I'll end with this, is solving the problem of colonial, colonial land confiscation is not possible within the lifetime of the Euro-American metaculture. Miigwech. Miigwech, and thank you for listening to episode one, the ontologies of land. Episode 2, Changing the Paradigm, focuses on different understandings of our relationships with the land, and particularly those traditional relationships which are challenging the Western and colonial interpretations of relationships to the land. The Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Project is funded by the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Forsensgradet, the Research Council of Norway. We would also like to thank the Department of Political Studies and the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's University and Globalizing Minority Rights at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, for their sponsorship and organizational support. Special thank you to CFRC Kingston for their assistance in coordinating this podcast and to traditional artist Patty Kusterow.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.